I just have to say, on the subject of um, the blessings that come during this Advent season, I was a bit overwhelmed this morning. I was standing in the back, um, watching everyone stream in as the music started, and I mean, I just felt this like overwhelming joy for this community and all the blessings that has poured into my life. Um, for those of you that I don't know personally, um, my wife Amanda gave birth to our second child uh, two months ago, and I mean, during that time, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm a little tired, I'm sorry. Um, but, but I mean, the, so there was a list of people that signed up to come bring us food, and honestly, it just, I felt like, like people, you have to stop, this is too much. Like we, we didn't cook for ourselves for almost a solid month, and it was just like people coming over to, to sit and, and share their lives with us. It was really a beautiful thing. So um, uh, thank you to everyone who is a part of that and you know all the ways that you pour yourselves into this community. It is really meaningful and a good thing. Um, so it's Advent season. Uh, and the question that I've been asked to wrestle with as we begin the Advent season is this question of what are we waiting for? Um, Advent is a time of anticipation. As Kevin said, you know, it's, it's this time where we rehearse this very familiar story of Jesus' arrival. And so we set aside time to really think about what Jesus' birth means for us. Because the story of Jesus is, is all at once the start of an incredible story that turns so much of what we think we know about the world on its head. And it is also the culmination of thousands of years of God's story being lived out in the world. And so during Advent, we learn to wait as a community. Um, symbolically, we wait to anticipate what Jesus' birth means for the world, but in a really tangible sense, we wait for what God wants to do in each of our lives and among us all as a community. Um, but I have to admit, uh, waiting is the worst. I mean, really. I am, I'm a terrible waiter. Uh, I get anxious and nervous, and it just it does bad things to my insides. And I think... It's often because I wait on the wrong things. And I think a lot of us probably do that. Um, let me give you an example. So when I was fresh out of college with my first real job, my wife Amanda and I had just gotten married, I developed a bad habit of obsessing over some new purchase every few months. Um, I think it probably had to do with growing up relatively poor and suddenly I had my own money and I had this freedom to just spend it on whatever I wanted and I just couldn't, I couldn't handle the idea that I could just walk into a store and take something away and they would let me have it. Um, so this turned into almost a hobby, right, where I would get obsessed over some new purchase every couple of months. It, at one point it was a flat screen TV, a new power tool. I once actually bought a pair of night vision goggles. Um, <laughs> I still have them, it's really embarrassing. Um, and this was long before I had kids, so it's even worse. It was really, um, so I'd research all the best features and I'd pick out like exactly the model I wanted to buy. And I'd start talking it up to Amanda because I had to sell her on the idea. So, you know, little by little, I would convince her that my life was not complete without this particular thing. Finally, I'd wear her down and she'd relent. I would order whatever it was and I'd feel some initial rush as I opened the packaging and I used it for the first time. But I mean, every single time, so quickly, that, that same feeling just comes rushing in like, really? This is it? 
Like, I mean, that wasn't as great as I hoped it would be. And just this disappointment. And I would feel stupid for all the obsessing that I did about it and all the time and the effort I spent researching on it. It must have taken me at least a dozen times through this cycle before I realized that no matter how interesting it seems, more stuff is never worth the wait. And often, if it, some things even seem like they're worth the wait, um, and even if they are, it's, it's not really what you expected when it arrives. So as I said, um, Amanda recently gave birth to our second child, a beautiful baby boy named Luke. Um, and with him, we mostly knew what we were getting into. But um, our first child, Isabella, was uh, another story. So I actually think we have a picture of me after she was born, if that's... Yeah. So you can, if you look really closely in my eyes, you can see like a mixture of terror and exhaustion. Um, I was very happy, but it was... It was quite the ordeal, because um, the stories that popular culture tells you about parenthood are like half exaggerated cliches, and the other half are just sentimental nonsense. Um, our process of waiting for Izzy to arrive was eventful, to say the least. So my wife had a particularly strong version of what are called Braxton Hicks contractions, uh, which are basically just like fake contractions that your body's like getting ready for labor. I learned all about this during this whole ordeal. Um, but we didn't really know what we were waiting on, right? Like, you've never been through childbirth, you don't know what's, what it's gonna be like. And so, um, we assumed they were real contractions, and my wife started tracking them, and we actually, I created a Google Doc where she would like put <laughs> the time, and it would calculate how far between them. So I was literally sitting at work every day watching this Google Doc out of the corner of my eye with like contractions popping up. And finally, like, they get to three minutes, right? And they say that's the time you're supposed to go to the hospital. So I rushed home from work and um, head to the hospital. And so, like, we're there about 20, maybe 30 minutes. And as we <laughs> were walking out of the hospital, um, and all the nurses are sort of, like, holding back their chuckles as we leave because there was nothing happening. Like, we weren't even anywhere close. Um, it turned out that Izzy was born almost three weeks later. Um, and that was our third trip to the labor and delivery ward. Um, so she obviously turned out to be very worth the wait. But um, also, my first day as a father was not quite what I had expected either. So we'd gotten through the delivery, um, and we're now in the recovery room. Things are calming down, and it really starts to like sink in. Like you get this, like, oh my gosh, this is this is my child, and I'm I'm a father, and like I was having trouble wrapping my head all around it. And, and I'm holding her, and I, I noticed that her diaper is like turning blue. There's a little strip on there that tells you it needs to be changed. I had literally never changed a diaper in my life to that day. So I'm like, okay, this is my first like real father moment, right? I'm gonna change the diaper. So I set her on the little cart, and I take the diaper off, and like wipe her clean and everything, pull out the new diaper. I, I sort of pick up her legs to scoot the diaper underneath of her. And just as I do, she tenses up and then there's a weird noise. And I suddenly realize what's happened here. She's had the first bowel movement of her life directly into my hand. <laughs> that was the first of many magical parenting moments. Um, so all, all of that is to say that even the good things in life are not always what we expect them to be. 
You see, when we wait in anticipation of the wrong things, then our waiting will ultimately feel hollow and wasteful. And when we wait in anticipation of the blessings of God, children, all of these other wonderful things that can come in our lives, we'll often be surprised by exactly what we're getting into. So the Bible itself is actually a long story of expectation. We're now finished with the year of biblical literacy, and one of the reasons we spent an entire year focusing on the, the grand narrative of the scriptures is because to really understand Jesus, you need to feel the longing of the Israelites who spent thousands of years living in expectation, both of the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that through his descendants, the whole earth and all that is in it would be blessed, but also through that long and often torturous history, they waited and waited and waited for God to deliver on his promise in a more immediate sense by freeing them from their oppressors. By the time Jesus comes around, it's the Romans who fall in a long line of successive dominating empires from which Israel needs freeing. And throughout scriptures, there are prophecies of God's coming salvation from the Romans, from the Babylonians, from the Assyrians, and they sound something like this. We read it on the video earlier, Isaiah 64, starting in verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. The Israelites wanted vindication. They wanted God's power and might on full display so that all their enemies and doubters would be awed by the God that stands with them. They didn't just want to win, they wanted to win big. They wanted everyone who opposed them to be left in awe of just how powerful their God is. I think if we're honest, many of us hope that when God's vision for our lives is realized, that it looks something like this. A grand victory that we can lord over others we're waiting for a savior in our own image. It's amazing how quickly even our desire for God's kingdom can turn into a vehicle for our selfish ambition. I'm the kind of person who I am often tempted by grandiose visions of my own future. I imagine there's a lot of people like that here who came for some dream of what they might do in the world and the things they might affect. Um, I spent I started out uh, after grad school, I started working in international development, and I eventually left um, a job I had with the UN World Food Program to go found a social entrepreneur uh, endeavor. And I, it was to build an ethical clothing company to combat bar uh, garment worker abuse in Bangladesh. And life as an entrepreneur is this like constant roller coaster of emotion, right? Like the good days are amazing, the bad days are some of the worst you've ever been through professionally. Um, there are days when it feels like you're bending the universe to your will and that everything will be more just simply because of what you did that day and it feels really good. And then there are days when you feel so insignificant and hopeless and like nothing you do will ever matter. And on those dark days, you have to find a motivation, right? You have to be able to reach deep inside yourself and figure out why am I gonna keep doing this tomorrow? And it's a really revealing exercise because as you search yourself, it's impossible to lie 
about what your motivations are in that moment, right? There are, because I had these, this picture that I hoped people would believe about why I was doing this entrepreneurial thing, and, and, and it was like, you know, I want to make the world more just, and I want suffering garment workers to have better lives, and that is all true, I, I believe those things, but the thing at the core, when it got down to those really dark times, was that I wanted to be admired. I wanted, I wanted to be financially secure. I wanted to never have to worry about money again, and I wanted people to think I was great, and this is why I was doing it. And I was sort of forced to wrestle with this idea that, that even this noble thing that I felt God laid on my heart, that I was working towards very hard, at the heart of it was my own darkness, my own failing. And I think, I suspect that God allowed me to fail at that endeavor in part so that it would, I, I would see how deeply selfishness is embedded into even my most honorable pursuits. I mean, it doesn't take much reflection to uncover the fundamental brokenness of our world. Even just the careful examination of your own motivations is likely to uncover ways in which your noblest of intentions are intertwined with vanity and greed and envy. I know that mine are. So as we prepare ourselves to reenact the coming of Jesus, I think it's important to ask ourselves, what does this mean? What are we really waiting for? Why are we here? I think the words of Paul in his letter to the Romans might have some insight for us. So in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we find ourselves waiting today in what often feels like dark days in the history of our nation and the world. The decay of creation and those who reside in it feels like it is right on the surface. The litany of things bubbling up is exhausting. Sexual abuse being revealed in every corner of our society. Greed and indifference to the poor dominating our politics the drums of war beating harder every day, a lack of character or principle demonstrating itself ever more clearly in our public life. And the response that people have to this varies, right? Some people despair, some get angry, some protest, some become indifferent. But there's an undercurrent that is almost universal in people's responses to this, and I am guilty of this myself, and that is self-righteousness. It's this posture where it's not enough for us to name evil for what it is and, and claim that injustice where we see it, but we other it, we push it away. 
We cast it onto another group of people that are not us, and we essentially declare ourselves clean from it. But here is the testimony of all of Scripture that Paul distills for us so eloquently. Evil finds its origin in us. The one who subjected creation to futility is us. The inward groaning that we feel is an acknowledgement that we are still deeply implicated in the sinfulness of the world that Christ comes to free us from. You see, if we first admit that sin is at work in the world and it finds its origin in our own hearts, then we can stop waiting in anticipation of a vindictive savior who draws clear battle lines and dominates those we've othered. The redemption story of Christian faith starts not with a hero figure who comes in power and might, not with a conquering king. It starts when God lowers himself into human form. And not just any human form, but a poor outsider of a human born on the wrong side of the tracks from the wrong kind of family. If the advent of Jesus is to teach us anything, it must be at least that the power of God to set the world right will not be realized amid our grandest achievements or according to our most self-indulgent dreams. The salvation of God will not abide our vanities. It will not flatter us or vindicate us or bring us glory. We are not waiting for a hero or a conqueror or a genius who will answer the groaning of creation with a forceful overthrow of darkness or a brilliant innovation of thought that unlocks new human potential. Instead, we wait for a baby, born the bastard child of a poor teenage girl, pledged in marriage to a day laborer from a meaningless town on the outskirts of civilization. He would be born in a barn and lie in a feed trough and welcomed into this world by an entourage of shepherds and farm animals. A baby who would inherit the unlikely lineage of long-lost kingship from a fledgling Near Eastern nation that found itself under the military occupation of the most powerful empire in human history. And this child would bring a message of an upside-down kingdom of God that honors the weak and the lost, a message of radical love, of enemies, of outcasts, of the unclean and the undesirable, a message that would so upset the powers of the day that a mighty empire would fear him and put him to death, only to see him rise again and his church to long outlast their empire. The hope of Christ is not that we will realize the world of our wildest dreams. It is that we will start to see the world and ourselves as God sees us, beloved and broken. And that vision will turn our dreams upside down. That all the injustices that disfigure us would no longer cause us to draw battle lines of race and class and gender and economics and circumstance but that we would respond to the inward groan that this is not how it should be. As Paul continues in Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. 
And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There is an answer to the darkness of our world. There is hope that still shines brightly, but it may not often be what we selfishly wish it was. The Israelites hoped and prayed for centuries that their blessing of the whole earth would come via a powerful vindication from their oppressors. And what they got was a baby born in a barn who not only refused to take up the mantle of revolution against their oppressors, but told them to love their enemies and condemned them for their religious power grabs. It seems impossible. I mean, if you were to try to write the story of Jesus' salvation knowing nothing about the world, you would never come up with that story. No one would. It would never be any one person's dream that the story of Jesus is how the world is set right. But the Spirit of God continues to beckon us through the ages to usher us into the life we were meant to live. God's plan for this world is to transform us all through the power of self-giving love. And the arrival of Jesus reminds us so profoundly that status and power and self-righteousness are the enemies of love. Whatever it is you find yourself waiting on this season of Advent, whether it is a new job or a relationship in need of healing or spiritual direction or just a sense of peace and contentment in your life, do not be tempted by the patterns of this present age to place your hope in all the wrong places. But listen carefully for the Holy Spirit to speak into your life with sighs too deep for words and draw you ever closer to the upside-down kingdom of God. Wait on the right things and allow yourself to be surprised by the plans God has for you that you could never have imagined. Because that is where true peace and the fullness of life can be found. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the spirit that guides us. We pray that this Advent season during a time of year that can often be so hectic and stressful that it would instead become a time when we learn to wait and to listen for the call of your spirit, for the sighs too deep for words. That by the time we celebrate Christmas as a community, that we would collectively and individually have a clearer vision of the future you have for us. That our Christmas celebration would be more than sentiment and tradition, but a reminder of the revolutionary way of life that you call forth in each of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray.